Welcome to a Work in the West podcast, supported by funding from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council and organized by Dr. Sheila Campbell and Andrew Stevens at the University of Regina. This alt conference series interviews researchers, graduate students, and community members about the state of work and employment in Western Canada. Enjoy. Today we have with us Lori Wilkinson and Paul Hawley. Welcome. Can you each tell us a little bit uh, about your research background and what brings you to this world of research? I'll let you go ahead, Lauren. I've always been interested in human rights. And as a student, as an undergraduate student, I always kind of wondered, you know, why is it in a society that, you know, likes to think of itself as being based on meritocracy, uh, trying to reduce inequalities um, and give everybody an equal chance that there seemed to be some massive qualities that still persisted. And so that got that, that basic question actually followed me throughout my research career. When I did my PhD, I was focusing on the integration challenges that refugee youth face when they migrate to Canada. And I've followed that trajectory through in my work as a professor as well. Paul? Thanks, Laurie. So yeah, my research, well, first of all, I'm the research director at the Association for Canadian Studies. And my, my current research and what I've been researching for quite a while now is immigrant in integration and inclusion, anti-racism, and then more recently, of course, COVID-19, particularly the social impacts of, of social and economic impacts of COVID-19 on various populations within Canada. And actually, my work and Laurie's work uh, intersects um, across the CIMI, the, which is the Canadian Index for Measuring Integration. And we've added an additional I recently, so it's in integration and inclusion. But really, this is a tool for policymakers, researchers, settlement providers, service providers, local immigration partnerships, and so on. It's really to evaluate outcomes of immigrants relative to Canadian-born population. I'm looking at changes over time over really a 30-year time period starting in 1991. And we, we do a geography-based analysis looking at census metropolitan areas as well as provinces. And so, so that's, that's a big crux of my work is, is on the, that tool for policymakers, service providers, and researchers. And ever since last March, March 2020, we started the COVID-19 Social Impacts Network at the Association for Canadian Studies, which is really, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary group of some of the country's leading experts in, in the area, in the field to identify what are, those, what are those differential impacts for different groups and particular vulnerable populations within Canada, newcomers, uh, racialized communities, and so on. And how does, how does the pandemic differentially affect those groups versus other groups? And uh, so we've been monitoring that for the past, oh, say 16 months since March. And we have a, a weekly, which has turned into a bi-weekly survey of the Canadian population to, to get their views and their, uh, about the pandemic and uh, their behaviors and so on. So that, that's really what brings me to studying well, the topic at hand here, working in the West uh, in particular with immigrant workers and looking at them as being one of the more vulnerable groups uh, historically in terms of outcomes related to uh, integration and inclusion, but also looking at how COVID-19 has really impacted this community more so than others. Thank you so much for sharing with our listeners a little bit about your research background. Next, I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in the topic 
and that looks at the effect of the pandemic on the employment of refugees who are working on the prairies. So for it, it became really apparent early on that immigrants and refugees were going to be adversely affected by the closures that were necessary to be implemented because of COVID-19. So in Quebec, for instance, there was a lot of media attention on the healthcare sector, especially people who work in the long-term care sector, and how many of them happen to be either refugees or people who are applying to uh, become recognized as a refugee in Canada. And uh, the federal government started to pay attention and gave a pathway to the asylum seekers who were working in long-term health facilities to apply for permanent residency, because this is a particularly dangerous work, given that COVID-19 was spreading throughout the long-term care facilities. And having worked in the Western region for uh, the majority of my life, I know the same thing was happening here. I also was uh, watching, you know, the information about the long haul truckers who have to go, you know, across the U.S. border to to haul their goods and services between Canada and the U.S. And I know that many of those workers are newcomers to Canada. And, And so there's this group of workers that had to be at work, had to be public facing and had to face a lot of uncertainty, whether or not they themselves would catch COVID. And then there was another group of workers who were also more likely to be newcomers. And that's the people who work at at grocery stores and other frontline services that we require. And many of them were working overtime, being exposed to people who could be sick themselves. And you'd hear the odd newspaper report about outbreaks, say at meatpacking facilities, which is also a place where many newcomers work. The third group is a group that would be excluded from working because they were simply laid off. They're working at jobs that, you know, whose business is closed. And so they would be adversely affected by COVID-19 by the basis of they no longer had a paycheck. So it, it was very clear early on that newcomers would be adversely affected by the pandemic restrictions. Yeah, and just to follow up on on what Lori's uh, mentioned, so early on in the work of the COVID-19 Social Impacts Network, we started looking at disaggregating the data by newcomer status and for for visible minority groups and so on. And one thing we've noticed throughout is that newcomers in particular are are overrepresented in, I would call, like uh, precarious jobs, jobs with low or pay, frontline job service industry jobs, jobs where you're interacting with the public or where you're around a lot of other people, let's say. So that, so for, for number one, they're more vulnerable to the, to the COVID-19 itself. But also during the pandemic, these groups have been more likely to experience job loss or reduced pay. So not only do they make, it's kind of a double, you know, a double-edged sword here. They're making less and they're also uh, the most likely to, to get laid off or to have a reduction in pay or, or work hours. So they're already vulnerable to start with. And it seems like this is the group that is that is also having the most impact in terms of economics or their financial situation during the pandemic. So that's something we've been studying and tracking throughout the past 16 months. Thank you so much, Paul and Lori, for telling us a little bit about that. And next, I wanted to ask you, how has COVID affected the lives of migrant workers in Manitoba? 
to I'll learn. Okay, I'll let you go. Um, a lot of data to report, so I'll let you start that off. So in general, migrant workers in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta have had somewhat ex similar experiences to migrant workers across the uh, rest of Canada. If we look at the their living conditions live in precarious housing, especially temporary workers. They may be living in low-income housing that maybe are overcrowded. So you have reports in Alberta in particular where migrant workers would carpool. Usually they'd live in Calgary and carpool to their jobs outside of Calgary. And in the process of carpooling, one of them would catch COVID and pass it on to the other people in the car. And so, you know, that situation you know, happens with other Canadians, but it happens at a higher degree with migrant workers who are, are more apt to be doing this kind of activity. They're also more apt to be living in multi-generational households. So you have a household with elderly people and with toddlers and everyone in between. And so if somebody catches COVID, you know, trying to protect the elderly and the, and the young people is more difficult when you have so many people uh, sharing a household. Um, separation from families is a big issue as well. And that causes for everyone, but that worry you bring them it with you to work as well. So, you know, in terms of COVID's effects on, on your mental health may affect newcomers a bit more, especially if their home country is being more affected by COVID-19 as many countries are. And then as we roll out the vaccines, we're seeing that you know, the rich countries, they get the vaccines first. And so um, watching as people here decline vaccines or as we um, continue to open up causes extra worry for this group. We know from the numbers, however, that COVID-19 has really uh, affected immigrants and refugees in ways other groups of people have not been affected. So just today, the province of Manitoba released a bunch of data indicating that the rates of COVID-19 illness hospitalization and, and mortality amongst uh, the South Asian population in particular, but the more broad, more broadly defined Asian population and Middle Eastern population are significantly higher than they are for any other group of worker. So you can see the toll at which COVID-19 you know, really has affected some ethno-cultural communities in ways that other ethnocultural communities haven't experienced. So what I did is I looked at some different data sources to help uh, answer this question. And there was some interesting findings. So I used data from the Labor Force Survey from StatsCan, where I looked at key economic indicators for immigrants and, Canadian, and the Canadian-born population in Manitoba, and also looked at it in the rest of Canada. So for instance, the Labor Force participation rate in Manitoba amongst immigrants, if you look at the first quarter of this year to the first quarter of 2020, in the first quarter of 2019. Believe it or not, it actually hasn't changed that much. It's about 70% and it has, hasn't shifted so much. So that's actually a positive in, in the sense that it uh, hasn't really changed for, for immigrants in terms of their labor force participation. Similarly, their unemployment rate, well, it's, it's gone up, but the gap between immigrants and Canadian born in Manitoba, if you look at this uh, the first quarter of 2021, it was both at 7.2%. So whereas in the rest of Canada, you actually have a higher unemployment rate for immigrants at 9.5% versus 7.2% uh, in, in Manitoba, just recent data. Now, if you start looking at other data, uh, which gets a little bit more fine-tuned in terms of our survey data, that was macro level data of the Canadian population, but looking at data from our, our bi-weekly surveys of the Canadian population through the Social Impacts Network, 
we asked several questions about the financial impact of the crisis. And so, for instance, if you look at has the crisis had a negative impact on you financially when it comes to decreasing your income, per se, we see that in immigrants, 44% of immigrants in Manitoba report a decrease in income which is about 8%, 9% higher than that of the Canadian born in Manitoba. Other things such as your capacity to meet your financial obligations to pay your bills on time. Well, 32% of immigrants in Manitoba say that the crisis has impacted their ability to pay their bills on time versus only 15% of the Canadian born. Um, and actually this gap is, is it's quite a bit larger than the rest of Canada. So you're looking at a 16 point gap between immigrants and non-immigrants in Manitoba versus only about a five or six point gap in the rest of Canada. So there are some, some factors that are really affecting immigrants. One other one I'll mention is your capacity to pay your mortgage or rent. 28% of immigrants in Manitoba report this is a problem. And um, also their capacity to assist other family members financially, about six points higher for immigrants in Manitoba. So we are seeing that in Manitoba, even though the, the large, like the labor force participation rates, unemployment rates, there's not much difference between immigrants and non-immigrants within Manitoba. When we ask these specific questions about their personal finances, we see these big gaps. And so it's very clear that immigrants in Manitoba are being very much affected by this pandemic financially, much more so than the Canadian-born population within Manitoba. Thank you so much uh, for sharing those insights with us. And what I wanted to know next was, what is the most striking about the state of migrant workers' rights in Canada? You know, I think the pandemic really highlighted what a lot of us already knew of migrant workers in Canada, especially the ones who are on temporary work permits, that the conditions in, that they live in are actually conducive to disease spread. So there have been media reports and photos showing, you know, farm workers who are living, you know, in bunk beds with 20 or 30 people to a single room, sharing a single washroom. And these units have been approved by the Canadian government. So these are legal. But when it comes to, you know, protecting these workers from communicatable diseases, it becomes a hotbed for disease spread. So if one of these workers gets sick, and this has happened on several farms in southern Ontario, it quickly spreads to other workers. And sadly, some workers have died. So Grante, which is a organization that helps temporary foreign workers in Canada, they've recorded seven deaths of basically young men, like none of these men were, were elderly at all, who came to work on, on farms or to work temporarily in other organizations falling ill to COVID-19 dying here. And there's not a lot of repercussion for employers or, or to encourage employers to pay to even just send their bodies back home and to give their relatives closure. You know, in terms of the, the living condition, I think highlighting the poor living conditions that these largely men, but sometimes women work under is also enlightening to many Canadians because they had never considered this before. For those of us who've worked in the area, we've seen this and have been trying to, to get employers to institute changes, but it's hard because employers, you know, want to try to maximize their profits. And so trying to reduce the cost of, of putting up their workers in accommodation means that uh, shared accommodation is very common. I think when we look at how difficult it is 
to get a vaccine, uh, especially since you being a temporary worker or a, a non-permanent resident, every province has, has recorded extreme difficulties for this group of people to get vaccinations. And it's vaccination will be key um, to getting Canada, this pandemic state, and certainly for the world. So it's, it's our duty as a country to make sure that all the people who live here have equitable access to, to vaccines. So I think, I mean, we, we, we could talk about other rights, but I think for me, the, the, those of temporary workers really stood out in capital letter as, you know, as part of the COVID-19 response that we had in Canada. You know, I would just add with regard to temporary foreign workers in Canada. Now, the, the government of Canada does have a number of policies in place or, or guidance in place that protect temporary foreign workers in Canada. But what I question is, is the education piece is, is how many temporary foreign workers know their rights. And maybe there, there could be more done uh, that could be done to ensure that they're aware of their rights. Like, for instance, the employers as a, the employer, they have to pay temporary foreign workers during the quarantine period. So if they arrive here from another country and they have to quarantine, which they do, of course, uh, which I think that's going to be lifted as of tonight, if I'm not mistaken, but for certain groups, but they have to pay for a minimum of 30 hours per week at their regular hour, hourly rate. So it's not like you quarantine when you arrive here and you don't receive any money. If you're employed by a Canadian employer, they're supposed to pay you during that quarantine period. So that's something that, that you know needs to be out there in terms of information. Also, they're not allowed to work during the quarantine period. So this even includes if your employer asks you to do administrative tasks at home, you're, you're actually not allowed to do that according to the guidance from the Canadian government. So I think there's just a, an education piece that, need, that needs to be out there that ensures that migrant workers, temporary foreign workers know their rights and that they're getting what they deserve. They're getting the supports that they, that they need financially and socially, whatever they may be. And what are or what were some of the challenges associated with the conducting research on an often marginalized population? I would say the first issue is at the start of the pandemic, the federal government and most of the provinces were reluctant to share immigration, indigenous status, ethno-cultural community information about COVID-19. They just, I don't know if they didn't want to share it or couldn't share it, but I was on a number of committees that was lobbying the uh, federal government in particular, but the provincial governments as well to release this, just some simple data. Because we, we saw in the United States that immigrants, African-Americans and Indigenous Americans were suffering greatly from COVID-19 and were affected more by the economic and social restrictions. And this data we kind of knew might be happening in Canada, but it was very, very hard to get data. We have colleagues at the University of Toronto in a group called ICES. They were able to release some really interesting findings about um, the rates of COVID-19 amongst refugees, economic immigrants, and family immigrants in late summer last year. And I think that was the impetus for the other provinces to uh, start to release some data. It's not 
a lot, but it gives us an indication that what we're witnessing in the United States is very similar to what we're witnessing in Canada. In terms of actually collecting data for our research project, we've got a a quantitative component, you know, surveying people every week since March 2020. But we have a qualitative component as well, because we realize it's hard to get refugee voices in particular, asylum seekers, Indigenous people, they might not be um, able to access our survey. So we're going out in the field right now to do interviews with these groups of people to, to learn more about their experience and to make sure they have a voice in our findings. And finding them has been a challenge because there's no list, of course, but fear once we do find them, especially if we're talking to or wanting to talk to an asylum seeker, you know, fear that if they share their experiences with us, that their chances of staying in Canada will be diminished. Sometimes it's just scheduling problems. Many of the newcomers, they're working two or three jobs. And so more on more than one occasion, I've had to interview people at two or three o'clock in the morning because that's the time they have off. And and so that becomes uh, difficult. And then if we add the pandemic restrictions, sometimes we're limited to talking on the phone, which is difficult to get rapport with a participant. But sometimes we're lucky enough to be able to, to use Zoom, but it's not the same as sitting in the same room and sharing the same atmosphere. It really affects the rapport you get as a as an interviewer because you're not sharing that same space with with the person. And so that can be uh, difficult as well. And even and and under these conditions, getting participants from the most marginalized is going to be even more difficult because we're limited to electronic means like telephone calls or or Zoom, which might be way out of the reach of a potential uh, participant. Yeah, and to echo what Lori's saying, in terms of challenges associated with, with conducting research on marginalized groups in Canada, newcomers, is I actually believe that all the, the outcomes we show, if we show related to COVID, related to economic impacts, social impacts, I believe, if anything, these impacts are being underestimated for these communities. Because just as Lori said, if you have a newcomer working two to three jobs, and they're probably not going to take your survey. And so it's a matter of who, who's being selected to take these surveys or who's volunteering rather. And uh, the information that they're providing, despite it being quite alarming in many instances, it might not actually reflect what's really going on. It might actually be a little bit more dire for these communities because the most vulnerable newcomers and the most vulnerable groups in Canada, we might not be actually accessing information from them. And so that, that's something that's always a challenge. And also, just from an empirical standpoint, the sheer numbers. So if you conduct a, a survey with a thousand people, you're likely to, you're lucky if you get a couple hundred immigrants. And when you try to break down data on various outcomes for immigrants, if you want to look at time of arrival, so look at recent immigrants versus established, that reduces your sample even further. If you want to look at economic versus family versus refugee class, of course, that breaks your sample down further. So we're actually quite limited. Even the results I presented today were just immigrants as a whole. And that includes people who've been here for 20 years. And we, we know from our SIMI research, the Canadian Index for Measuring Integration, that actually those, those more established immigrants tend to have similar outcomes as the Canadian-born population in terms of economic outcomes, social, civic, and democratic, and health outcomes. So that's something to keep, to keep in mind, is we might not be reaching the most vulnerable populations with our research. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. And finally, I wanted to ask you, what are the implications of this research on work in the West and migrant worker policies across Canada? I think we've learned a lot in this last year and a half about exactly how social and economic inequality operate in Canada with regards to newcomers. There's many ideas that can help minimize the impact of the social and economic restrictions on immigrant workers. If we want to talk about vaccines, newcomers are actually more likely to be willing to take the COVID-19 vaccine than people born in Canada by a small margin, but it's still a, a fairly um, high number. But it, it's more difficult for them, for many of them to be able to access the vaccine. So some employers in Canada have set up on-site vaccine clinics that allow workers to get their vaccine on their coffee break, for instance, or as they're about to go home or as about, you know, when they're about to start work. And so that makes it more convenient for them. It makes a lot of sense, especially if you're working multiple jobs, but there are other things that are popping up too, right? Like some employers were reluctant to give time off to their workers to get the vaccine if they couldn't be done on site. And so some of the provinces have introduced legislation that would allow the employer to pay the worker to so that they wouldn't miss any income in order for them to fulfill a vaccine appointment. But going beyond that, you know, we that we've identified issues with sick leave policy in Canada. So sick leave policies tend to be provincially um, mandated. So it's not shared equally across the provinces. And so many people are reluctant to get the vaccine because they're scared that the um, side effects will be so bad that they'll have to miss work. And so having guaranteed time off with pay would be very important, not only for the people who are experiencing side effects, but also for the people who get COVID. So I think that's a, an issue that needs to be, you know, really discussed as a as a, as a result of this pandemic, getting information about the vaccine translated into multiple different languages has also been really important. So, you know, two of the three vaccines that are being used in Canada right now is, you know, what many people would consider to be very brand new technology. And so having an explanation, not only in English and French, but also explanations in various um, languages would really help provide additional information, particularly for the people who are trying to, to decide if they're going to get the vaccine or not. And I, I've been involved with some of the government lobbying to try to get governments to, to provide translation. I think they understand the importance of, of getting translated documents to uh, groups. Other ways of reaching out, many ethnocultural groups have leaders who should also take part in this. I mean, if we educate the leaders of many of these groups, they might be able to convince others in their group to take the vaccine as well. And that's been, that's had a bit of, of uptake and success in many newcomer communities across Canada. But overall, what the implications of this research really point to is the fact that you know, all of these workers, immigrants, refugees, refugee claimants, temporary workers, international students, all of them are experiencing life in Canada right now. And this 
life in Canada right now is part of the recept receptivity or the um, reception process of our country. And their experience at this time will influence their feelings about Canada as they live here in the coming decades. And so many of the newcomers have been unable to access various settlement services because they, they don't have internet technology or they don't have a computer. They don't have a way of reaching out and the settlement services don't have a way of reaching out to them either. So thinking about new ways of delivering information, delivering classes, language classes, integration classes, you know, those are very much on the horizon for IRCC, trying to work out ways that newcomers can get access to services remotely. And in Saskatchewan, that's a big deal because they've been working on this remote access for about five years now, like having remote language classes, for instance. So although this is not a new thing, COVID, I think, is, has sped this up and has also increased the geographical focus beyond Saskatchewan into other uh, provinces. The music in this podcast has been brought to you by Mick Fay and the Deputies.